In former times, we accounted ourselves a part of England, but upon the king's restoration, we were, in effect, made foreigners and aliens. This was the reflection of one Barbadian in 1689. It had been easy for colonists to ignore Commonwealth excesses and innovations because Cromwell's government hadn't been the true government of England in their eyes. When the new king confirmed these policies, though, American colonists started to feel that they were the ones who weren't truly English. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalpola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. Before we go any further, I want to announce that I will be speaking at this year's Intelligent Speech Conference. For four years, Intelligent Speech has worked to connect independent educational podcasters with fans in an intimate event. This year's event will be online on June 25th from 9.45 a.m. to 6.15 p.m. Eastern Time. Tickets are $30, but if you buy before May 15th, they're $20, and listeners of this show will get an additional 10% off by using the code RNR. I hope to see you guys there. And another quick note is that I'm going to go back to covering one colony or region at a time over the course of a series of episodes like I did before the English Civil War stuff. Connecting events in America to happenings in England isn't something that needs to happen with as much detail anymore, and I like the flow better the other way. So we're going to spend the next few episodes in the West Indies, before transitioning into discussion of our newest colony, Carolina. And with all that said, it's time to move on to the episode. When news of the Restoration reached the West Indies, there was immediate jubilation, but questions quickly emerged about how exactly things would play out. Nowhere were concerns as intense as in Jamaica, where there was the very real worry that in exchange for peace, Charles II would give the colony back to Spain. But issues of land ownership, taxation, governance, and of course the Navigation Acts all loomed in every colony with significant implications for their inhabitants. When the Restoration came, Antigua petitioned for an end to the Navigation Acts, saying that it had the potential to become an island even richer than Barbados if they could just get the necessary equipment, along with English indentured servants. One of Antigua's leading planters and, yes, slaveholders, was Samuel Winthrop, son of Massachusetts Governor John. In discussing their economic potential, Winthrop and his associates emphasized their size, the quality of their soil for sugar, their ability to produce salt and saltpeter for gunpowder, their fishing, which was the best in the Caribbean, and their history of exporting cattle to Barbados as evidence of what they could do. They also asked for more military equipment, saying that the guns, powder, and ammunition that Cromwell had sent them was all defective. 
They were on the verge of being the regional hub of trade and industry to supply other colonies, and they could profit from more than just English ones if the act was withdrawn. In Nevis, colonists didn't have official permission to grow sugar, though they had been anyway, and since they sold it to the Dutch, no one was the wiser. But now, with things entering a more permanent state, they petitioned for permission and got it. In St. Kitts, not one but two in a long series of fires destroyed Basseterre, one in 1660 and another in 1663, and this put questions of policy on the back burner. But it was in Barbados that the story was most intense, and also, of course, best documented. Barbados was the biggest and the richest colony in English America in 1660. It was at the height of its importance, the jewel of an emerging empire. Its wealth was reflected in stately mansions which could rival those in Europe, surrounded by tropical gardens and palm trees. No hints of wilderness danger and unknown remained. The only remaining forests were deliberately left there, and the indigenous populations had died out long before the English arrived. It was a place of wealth, sophistication, religious tolerance, political moderation, and also economic brutality. When England formulated its colonial policy, it was thinking about salivating over Barbados. And from the other direction, Barbados had advocated for its own interests in a more sophisticated way than had any other colony. As everywhere, the most hated English change of all was the Navigation Act, and the Navigation Acts were seen as having been punishment for the colony's initial refusal to submit to the Commonwealth. Barbados had, like all English colonies, been able to conduct its own affairs much more independently during the wars and commonwealth than either before or after. England was embroiled in a revolution, and it wasn't focusing on activities in colonies half a world away. So colonists had gotten used to doing their own thing. I mean, how many examples have I given of colonies ignoring the Navigation Acts? But now that the revolutions were over, and the colonies had gone from being everyone's last priority to being, in terms of economics at least, everyone's first, and of all the colonies, Barbados was the first and foremost in importance. Realistically speaking, there shouldn't have been any post-restoration drama in Barbados. Willoughby had been removed as governor, and his proprietary lease nullified as punishment for his support of the king who was now on the throne. Willoughby had been a popular and effective governor and lord proprietor, and he had actually lived in Barbados and visited the other islands in his patent while he controlled them, something which was almost unheard of. So it should have been fairly simple. Willoughby would return to the position that he had occupied prior to the blockade of Barbados, and the island would go on with life as usual. But life isn't that simple. So when the restoration was announced, Modiford was the governor, and he wanted to keep the job. 
Willoughby was back in control of the island legally, and he would retake the governorship. It was going to be hard to convince Willoughby to instate Modiford as governor instead of himself, especially because Modiford wasn't exactly popular in Barbados thanks to his emphatic support of Cromwell's Western design. In order to potentially keep control of Barbados, Modiford needed to do two things. He needed to convince the king that the Earl of Carlisle's patent, the patent which Willoughby had leased, making him Lord Protector of Barbados and the Leeward Isles, was invalid. And then he needed to convince whoever took control of Barbados that he was the best man for the job. Now, Willoughby had been popular, far more popular than Modiford, so Modiford couldn't oppose his governorship directly. Instead, he played on colonist fears about proprietary government. The biggest of these was property rights. Technically, land owned in proprietary colonies was ultimately owned by the Lord Proprietor, and most Barbadians who owned land had obtained at least some of it while Carlisle wasn't in control of the colony. That meant that their land ownership could be disputed, and there were clearly some high-ranking people in England who wanted to do just that. The Earl of Clarendon, one of Charles's top advisors, said of Barbados settlers that these adventurers had, during the Civil Wars, planted without anybody's leave and without opposition or contradiction. Worse, Carlisle had just died and Willoughby's lease would lapse in seven years, so that opened the way for a lot of uncertainty in the foreseeable future. Those were at least moderately legitimate worries, but in contrast to a future defined by those issues, Modiford then characterized the idea of being a crown colony as a future in which Barbados would be essentially free and independent, directly under the king, with no one controlling them in any meaningful way. Valid or not, that argument persuaded a majority of the population to back Modiford's push for Carlisle's proprietorship to be revoked, and the colonists drafted a petition to the new king calling Carlisle's patent illegal and asking him to revoke it and give Modiford a chance as governor. In addition to the legal argument, the petition highlighted the amount of money that Barbados could raise for the crown if Barbados, as a crown colony, gave the 4% export duty which had previously gone to the proprietor directly to the king. In other words, they insinuated that the king could get the value of 4% of Barbadian sugar exports if he revoked Carlyle's patent. The argument that Carlyle's patent was illegal went back to the earliest days of the colony, when Carlyle had effectively raced Sir William Courtine and the Earl of Marlborough for the right to the island, and in winning the race, 
gotten control in an extremely underhanded way. There had been a huge fight between Carlisle and Cortine's factions, both in English courts and in Barbados, where they had led to the island's starving time. But Carlisle had won, and both Cortine and Marlborough had died decades ago. And then, even when the Commonwealth had reversed the decision and declared them the legitimate owners of Barbados, their heirs had specifically refused to get involved in the colony. Whether the issue had been obsolete for years or decades, though, Modiford had a few things working in his favor. His close relative was General Monk, now Duke of Albemarle, the man who had ultimately ushered in the Restoration. The merchants supported Modiford, and under his lead, Barbados had offered the king an exorbitant amount of money, 4% on all of Barbados' exports, in addition to the import duties which he was already collecting. So the king asked someone to estimate exactly how much money he was looking at there, and then he started looking into the legality of the patent. And he found it to be invalid, so he revoked it. But when he reached out to Barbados to ask for that export duty to be finalized, colonists evaded the issue. They said that the person who had written the petition had put that part in without permission, and that they still needed to decide exactly how much should be sent to the king given the privations of the Navigation Acts and import duties. At this point, Modiford suggested that the colony send the king a large sum of money in order to potentially buy the colony's patent themselves, but colonists refused, saying that that felt a bit too much like buying Modiford power, and they had gotten the patent revoked, which was all they wanted anyway. Willoughby wasn't going to let this go without contesting it, though. I mean, of course he wasn't. He had leased the proprietorship completely fairly. He had governed well, and he had lost a huge amount of money fighting for the king's cause. When he got wind of Modiford's politicking, he named Humphrey Walrind as acting governor in his place. But Modiford refused to leave office until everything was decided, and surrounded himself with armed troops to prevent Walrind from doing anything. And it's worth taking a minute to note what an odd choice of acting governor Walrind was, and why Willoughby would choose him of all people. If Modiford wasn't particularly liked on the island, Walrind's reputation was far worse. Modiford's greatest political moments in Barbados had pitted him against Walrin's excesses. Walrin had been the person who had first broken the neutrality that Barbados had demanded of its settlers during the wars. He had been the person who had caused some of the colony's richest and most powerful planters to have to go into exile, at least temporarily, until Willoughby had come. And when Willoughby had first come to the island, he had been the person who had tried hardest to keep the new governor from taking office. Wallerand was some combination of 
angry at the country's political direction, deeply in debt, and simply power-hungry. And he had definitely left his mark on Barbados's political landscape. So why Walrond? It was simply a process of elimination. Modiford was working against Willoughby at that moment, and Walrond was willing to ally with him, at least for the time being. Daniel Searle was the other potential option, and he genuinely supported Willoughby, but he was a staunch Puritan who had both served and believed in the Commonwealth, which was again deeply unpopular at this point, and he would soon be moving to New England to live among like-minded people. It's worth noting, if for no other reason than that it makes me happy, that despite Searle's political loyalty to Cromwell, he had helped Barbados undermine the Navigation Acts, and he had ultimately lost his governorship because of that. But he was fundamentally a Cromwellian, which just wasn't going to work. So with those being the colony's surviving political leaders, Walrond was the most likely to be willing and able to advocate Willoughby's position. Plus, he had demonstrated the ability to be far more cutthroat than either Searle or Modiford ever really had. And to that point, when Walrond got Willoughby's letter, informing him of the situation and naming him president of the council, acting governor, he didn't tell Modiford. He quietly nominated his governing council, and then he published his orders for the whole island to see. And then, when Modiford asked exactly what was going on and asked to see the orders, Walrond told him that he could get out of his fortified governor's house and come see for himself, but he wasn't going to bring him anything. Modiford hesitated. He saw the trap and he was trying to figure out how to get around it. But when he didn't immediately come out, Walrond issued orders to Modiford's troops, ordering them to disband under penalty of high treason. The troops disbanded and Modiford gave up. And when he did, Walrond immediately arrested him for high treason. The case was dropped after two hearings, though, and when he was released, Modiford continued his political agitation. To balance the competing factions, neutrality-minded Barbadians elected members of Modiford's faction to serve on the colony's council, and elected Modiford as Speaker of the Assembly. Walrond accepted this, especially because the first issues to address were things that would unite all the colonists anyway. They drafted yet another petition to the king asking for there to be no customs duties imposed on them without their own consent, as well as yet another plea for free trade. In this particular request, for the first time, Barbadians emphasized the slave trade in their request for free trade. They said that the Royal African Company charged way too much for slaves, and they wanted to be able to get them for cheaper. This became a fairly consistent request among Barbadian colonists, with Royal African Company prices consistently high enough 
that colonists preferred to buy from private English merchants, even if they were trading illegally. And Barbados had become not just England's most slave-dependent society, but also a hub of the slave trade in the Atlantic world. I've mentioned before that at this point, pretty much all of the slaves in the English colonies came via Barbados, with the middle passage of the triangle trade already starting to take shape. This brings us to the second order of business that arose, which was that the Spanish, who were newly at peace with England, saw this, and their regional government asked Barbados for permission to trade for slaves there. They said that it would be cheaper for them to simply buy the slaves from Barbados than it would be for them to transport them all the way across the Atlantic. And in fact, they would save so much money that they were willing to pay 10% to Barbados's government for the privilege. And at this point, they wanted to buy 400 slaves for 10,000 pounds in 1662 money, so a pretty insane amount to take to Peru. The question then was whether Barbados was going to ignore the Navigation Act and agree to the Spanish offer, or whether they were going to follow the law and turn it down. The council voted to turn it down, but Walrund accepted it anyway. And then he pocketed the 10%, the thousand pounds, himself, with the explanation that he alone had incurred the risks of defying the Navigation Act, so he alone should get the reward. When they heard what Walrund had done, the assembly voted the transaction to be illegal, calling it a case of corruption and bribery. They reported the case to England, and England said that the transaction had been fine. In their ruling, they specified that the selling of slaves to the Spanish was okay, as long as the Spanish didn't supply any necessities or anything that Barbados could get from English merchants in exchange so they could sell surplus slaves as long as they still bought anything they needed from English merchants. This in contrast to the position that they had taken on Virginia tobacco. But practically speaking, this was a great deal for the king, because all it did was increase the demand for slaves, which could only legally be sold by his brother, head of the Royal African Company so it simply turned Barbados into yet another revenue stream for his family. So then, the only question was, who deserved the thousand pounds? And it was in the middle of this conflict that Willoughby returned. He had reached a compromise with the king, in which Barbados would remain a crown colony, but he would be the royal governor for the last seven years of his lease. In that time, he and Carlyle's heir would split a portion of the colony's export duty revenue, and after the seven years ended, Carlyle's heir would get all of it. Descendants of Carlyle's old rival, the Earl of Marlborough, would also get some money every year, and eventually all of those payments would end, 
and the crown would get everything. So in short, the king got the colony, everyone else got enough money to make them happy, and Willoughby remained governor. Legal issues decided, Willoughby had been able to return to Barbados, so he took control back from Walrond and ordered Walrond to return the thousand pounds. Walrond argued and finally refused, repeating the argument that he had run the risk alone so he should profit alone. In reality, he, like a lot of colonists, was deeply in debt, and when Willoughby didn't accept his argument, Walrond rode his horse up and down the island trying to recruit friends for an armed rebellion. But I mean, no one was going to risk their lives and livelihoods so that Walrond could keep a thousand pounds from what had been an illegal transaction at the time. He was arrested, escaped, and sailed for England in the middle of the night, vowing to get justice done. In England, his creditors came after him to try to get their money back, and to avoid debtor's prison, he again fled. This time, he went to the Spanish West Indies, and he died there not too long afterward. So Willoughby was back at the colony's helm, but this time he was a royal governor. As Lord Proprietor, he had been in complete control of the colony, so under Willoughby, the colony had effectively been self-governing. Under the Commonwealth, the English government hadn't been able to exert much real authority there, so it was de facto self-governing. But now, Barbados was a crown colony, and as a royal governor, Willoughby was acting on behalf of the king, advocating the king's interests in Barbados. The days of semi-autonomy were over, and they were over under a king who specifically wanted to get as much money as he could from his colonies. As much as Willoughby was dedicated to Barbados's interests, it was now fundamentally his job to serve the kings. And the first issue that he would have to deal with was the touchiest one, money. Willoughby's first task as royal governor was to get the assembly to agree to give the king a permanent stream of revenue from the island in the form of an export duty. Instead of calling a new assembly, he simply summoned the one which had met under Walrond and spent his time discussing the issue with the most influential colonists. Barbadians weren't exactly thrilled with the notion, in part because they already lost profits to England's import duty, so this was doubling up on taxes. And in part... Their dissatisfaction was because the extra duties would make their sugar more expensive and therefore less competitive in English and European markets. Willoughby's first proposal was an export duty of 10%, and the Speaker of the Assembly, Samuel Farmer, replied that that would pretty much eliminate planter profits on all sugar sold in the island he might be able to get the assembly to give him half that. When the assembly finally met, it took three weeks of exhausting debate before it would agree to an export duty 
of 4.5%. Ultimately, the deciding factor in colonists' acceptance of the duty had been the agreement that the island's administration and defense expenses, including building a sessions house and prison, as well as fixing its forts, would be paid by the king using that money. The king would still have money left over, but colonists could pay the duty knowing that they wouldn't have to raise any other taxes to do things like running their general assembly or paying their governor. The proprietary government had never done this, so even if they were now paying the king more than they had ever paid in the past, they'd be getting more for their money, so it was okay. The problem was that the king never upheld his end of the bargain. He kept all the money, and colonists were still forced to raise extra taxes to keep their government going. This meant that they had to pay dramatically more in taxes than before, and it increased Barbadian antagonism toward England and toward England's representative in the colony, meaning its governor. This 4.5% duty ended up becoming an infamous one in Barbados's history, imposed whether or not the colony could afford it for the next 160 years. And Willoughby's position with the colonists was now thoroughly undermined. Barbadians had pushed to become a crown colony because they thought that it would give them more liberty than before, but the reality was the opposite. And even though Willoughby had been the person who fought hardest against the ending of his own proprietorship, colonists were now upset with him for his participation in the royal government that they themselves had requested. They increasingly resisted his leadership, and he grew more and more frustrated with the whole situation. A good example of the tension involved a friend of his named Robert Harley, with whom he had worked on royalist plots to overthrow Cromwell. When Willoughby had returned to Barbados, he made Harley chancellor. Three months after Harley took the position, he refused to seal a writ from Willoughby, and Willoughby exploded, even accusing his old friend of accepting bribes. Harley immediately apologized and reversed his position, but Willoughby didn't accept it. Harley ended up returning to England to argue his case before the king, and Willoughby simply dismissed his actions as being because he couldn't remain here to do as he listed. He compared him to Walrand and washed his hands of him. Willoughby then took some time to visit the other islands which had been under the same patent as Barbados, and in which he was now in control, leaving his nephew Henry as acting governor. In each of the leewards, he ensured that colonists had to pay the same 4.5% taxes Barbados so that they were all playing on an even field. He did not, however, agree to pay public expenses from the tax, given how everything had gone in Barbados. In St. Kitts, Willoughby also enforced religious toleration and brought back the Quakers that the colony had banished. 
This led to a growing Quaker community there over the next few years. You might want to skip the next couple minutes if suicide is a sensitive topic for you. In Suriname, a disgruntled and desperate colonist tried to assassinate Willoughby and succeeded in wounding him severely enough that he was incapacitated for several months. Suriname was actually not a royal colony, and Willoughby was still one of its lord's proprietors, with the other one being one of the Earl of Clarendon's sons. But it had lived in a state of virtual independence over the previous decades, and with a sense of isolation unlike any other colony experienced. Almost no one in England even knew that Suriname existed, And when Willoughby arrived, he found the colony in decent shape. Colonists, who had mostly moved there from Barbados, had founded the town of Paramaribo, 60 miles downstream from the capital of Torre Rica. They were growing sugar and had the industry to refine it, as well as a population of several thousand people. The colony was rough, though. Conflict there was harsher and more brutal than it was in already genteel Barbados. The man who tried to kill Willoughby had been tried for blasphemy and dueling. He had asked Willoughby to let him off, and when Willoughby promised to investigate the issue, he had felt that that was too slow, and after a shockingly profane verbal tirade, attacked him with a cutlass. Then he had turned the sword on himself, and when he didn't die, drunk some poison. When he returned to Barbados, Willoughby started to arrange for Barbadians to be able to go to other colonies and islands. Poorer people, freed indentured servants, younger sons, and other people who couldn't find a place on the island now contributed to a massive expansion of the English Empire. Barbadians tried to found a sub-colony in St. Lucia, which would act as an extension of Barbados run by Barbados's government, and they negotiated with the local Carib population for this. The French in Martinique opposed the plan, saying that after their own failed attempt to colonize the island, they had always maintained a small presence there. Barbados sent settlers anyway, but the settlement didn't do well, and everyone eventually left or was killed by the Caribs. More successfully, though, Barbados sent a huge number of people to Carolina, where they founded, among other things, Charleston. And lots of them started going to Jamaica. Jamaica was kind of different, though. It was a rival to Barbados not under the same patent or proprietary grant, a competitor in the local commodities. And the pressures of the Western design, as well as its status as a naval base, had already encouraged Barbadian resentment of the colony. This resentment had been renewed in 1662, when Jamaica's new governor, Lord Windsor, had stopped in Barbados to recruit workers. Under the king's orders, Windsor had done this by offering, in short, to eliminate the debt of anyone who went. 
This meant that anyone who owed anyone any money could simply leave and not have to pay it. And it meant that a lot of Barbadians lost a lot of money again for no other reason than to settle Jamaica. They expressed their dissatisfaction, but they couldn't really do anything about it. Modiford became perhaps the most important Barbadian to move to Jamaica. He went there after losing the governorship of Barbados, and he took 800 people with him. And when he arrived, he not only became Jamaica's governor, but also the man who made the colony successful. And next week, that's what we're going to talk about. Before we go, I'm just going to give you one last reminder about the Intelligence Speech Conference and let you know that you can find more information about it in the episode description, as well as on my social media and on the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net. There, you can also find links to my Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee accounts to support this show if you're so inclined. But, as always, thank you first and foremost for listening. Have a wonderful week, and I will see you next episode.